Welcome to SimonCast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. I'm John Shaw, the director of the Institute. In SimonCast, we aim to keep the legacy of Senator Paul Simon alive through wide-ranging civil conversations. And today, we're delighted to be joined by Monique Jones, who is the president of Forefront, an important statewide organization that brings together the nonprofit, uh, grant-making, and investor communities. We're going to hear a lot about Forefront. We're also going to hear about Monique's really interesting and, uh, and uh, dynamic career. She's done a lot of things. She was born in Chicago, grew up in Little Rock, went to uh, undergrad at the University of Arkansas, where she studied social work, has a master's degree in social work at the University of Texas at Austin, and then has had some really consequential jobs in both direct service and also management. We will talk about some of those positions um, she, most recently, she was president of the Evanston Community Foundation, which is a really important foundation, and then became president of Forefront about uh, a year ago, actually in January of this year, has done just terrific work. I should say, as a, as a matter of full disclosure, I'm a member of Forefront's board of directors and have come to know uh, Monique and like her a great deal and really respect the work that she's doing, and I'm delighted that she's with us today. So, Monique, good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, John. Great. Well, Monique, tell us about um, your sort of growing, born in Chicago, growing up in Arkansas. And, and I know in our offline conversation, you were talking about Chicago and Arkansas seamlessly. So, so tell us about those two different worlds that you grew up in. They are. They're quite different. People don't know that I was born in, in Chicago. They kind of know the Arkansas part, um, but I was born on the west side of Chicago the youngest of four children and the only girl. So you can imagine my life um, growing up. But my parents um, divorced when I was three. So the youngest of three. And my mom saw it in her, I guess the right thing to do was to move us home, her hometown back in Little Rock. So I spent from three years old until after graduate school in Arkansas, loving it, living it, have a lot of family there, obviously. Um, and a lot of family here as well, both on my mom and dad's side. So I've been back now 16 years. I came back in 2015. No, sorry, 20, 2005. That's not 15 years. Um, but the worlds are different in not just um, policy, conservative, progressive, but I am a Southern girl and um, I have a Southern draw. If you hear me talk long enough, angry enough, or happy enough, you'll hear the twang come out in my voice. And seemingly, when I get on a flight home and I hear it, it all comes back to me. <laughs> um, but the similarities are, of course, the communities that want better for each other and for their families and are really, really, um, really vocal about, about that in, in different ways. So I often call home every, every day. I talk to someone from home every day, primarily probably my cousin or my brother. And we talk about the difference in the politics that are happening and how um, our families are fighting for what's right um, and fighting for their beliefs. And it makes me feel good in both communities that people use their voice to get their needs met and, and all of that. So I go home a couple of times a year and family comes up here a couple of times a year. And some of the distinct differences was just, Arkansas is a um, more rural, slower moving pace. Chicago is let's go, let's go, let's go. <laughs> so um, you can have a little bit of both in small spurts and, and love them both and we, we enjoy it. And my daughter 
wants to be from Little Rock, as she calls it. I want to be from Little Rock. No, dear. You're from Chicago. <laughs> so, um, but it was lovely. It was a lovely growing up there, I will say. And I didn't miss anything. Well, tell us about the, the impetus to study social work, because I know you studied both as an undergrad at the University of Arkansas and then also at the University of Texas, Austin. Was that, did you just have a clear calling in that realm or was it something you kind of, you know, sort of some fortuitous event, events that kind of nudged you there? How did that happen? It did actually, a, a quite fortuitous event. So I, at 16 years old, maybe 15, I had the opportunity to work at a daycare center that was owned by my church. And my aunt happened to be the administrator of that daycare center. So my summers were spent working with toddlers and loving on them and you know giving them goldfish crackers and playing, which was fun until one day with a, a young boy by the name of, I'm, so many years later, his name is Cody, I believe. Redhead Cody came in with his sister. Um, he just called her Sissy. I discovered that they were in a foster care program um, and he had been hurt. So Cody walked in with a cast around his hip and his leg. And as a two-year-old with a cast around your hip and your leg, Cody was making the most of it. But I fell in love with Cody. Cody fell in love with me. And I learned about um, the abuse that he had at the hands of his mother, his biological mother, and he was removed from the home. And that just that just took me. It took me in a way. Um, and of course, it brought me more into my aunt telling me how she had specifically worked with the daycare center to make sure that they could be a haven for children who were in foster care and had a partnership with the child services department in the state of, of Arkansas. And so I switched at the moment, I think I wanted to be an attorney. <laughs> I think I may have wanted to be a business attorney. And I had one aunt who was all for, I have, I have a big family. And um, at the same time, my mother was ill, um, complicated health issues. And she actually passed away the Christmas, day after Christmas um, when I was 17 years old. So right before I was getting ready to go into my high school year and right at the time of me declaring what major I wanted when I was applying for colleges. And I sat down with my high school college counselor who helped me fill out scholarship paperwork. And after my mom passed away, I was eligible for what was then called a scholarship for orphans from then Bowman's Bank. And I wasn't an orphan. I was living with my, my aunt and my brothers were there. I, I, I had a loss for nothing. However, on paper, I was designated as an orphan because my father had passed when I was 14. That was the moment when I decided I needed to be a social worker. Um, I recognized that Cody's didn't have what I had. Yes, I lost my parents at a, um, a, a, a later age in life, it could have been totally different for me had I lost my parents at a younger age or had something happened for me and I was in a position to sort of make that change. So at the University of Arkansas, which is in um, Washington County in the Ozarks of Arkansas, they have an excellent social work program. And the dean of the school, you know, accepted the application. You have to do two years before you formally say you want to be a social worker. It was a process of taking those, um, intro classes, you know, all the intro classes you have to take to make sure you qualify for that. And then I applied and I sat down with the dean and talked through 
how I wanted to go through life. And I, John, I literally said, I just want to help children. He was like, well, you have to be a little bit more specific at what you want to do. Um, and, and so I went to work at um, Washington County Head Start, where I was teaching toddlers how to brush their teeth and how to color with the right colors and how to use their words when they're angry. Um, it was and how to meet their family, meeting their families and making their families feel comfortable about leaving them with us. And this was sophomore in college. Um, so I, that one experience with Cody and Sissy led me to become a social worker and primarily throughout my career, early years of my career working in foster care, um, independent living programs and juvenile detention programs as well. And I thought I read someplace that you've done some work as um, a social worker in the hospice field. Is that right? Was that, I mean, which is, you know, from my own personal experience about the hardest mm -hmm. job on the planet, it seems. It is. If you would talk to my aunt Gloria, she, she loves it. And that's how I got into it. So I moved to Chicago in February of 2005 and I moved without a plan. I had a savings account. I had a car, had a dog. And my, my aunt, um, Gloria Boo, said, come on. She said, come on, and we'll figure it out when you get here. And when I got here, I actually worked part-time at the hospice um, organization that she works for. So as a hospice social worker, in hospice general, you may know this, John, that sometimes the hospice nurse or the hospice social worker is the first to let a family know what hospice is. A doctor don't, doesn't say it, a nurse doesn't say it. It's, it's so interesting. Once they realize that um, their options for, their family members' options for living longer are, are cut. Um, so being in that space of delivering news to families and helping them line it up, something that I was not expecting, but it was short-lived. I only did it for about three months. My aunt does it for a lifetime. She is an angel for doing it. Um, it is her space in this world. And it is a space where I wish more people actually would get used to um, because unfortunately death is inevitable. And to be comfortable in that space with yourself and your family and, um, and navigating it, I think the world would be a much, much, much better place if we all recognized um, that phase in our life. Right. Well, Monique, I saw an interview you did recently, and it was uh, it was uh, it was asking about what something you are doing now, and then you your response was, well, as a social worker, and then you responded, is that still sort of at the core of your identity? Is that how you look at the world? And and I know we have complex multiple identities, but is that sort of your core one? Would you say? It is. It, there's this one. There's a set of principles, of course, a set of ethics. Um, what I've learned in every area that I've worked with is I can, my colleagues can, we all can provide, enhance, improve knowledge, but it is the person who is experiencing the issue that has to make the decisions and the changes. And that's called right to self-determination. I lead with that as a social worker because I recognize that everyone has their own decisions to make. And so, I often think of how we try to make the decisions for our communities, how we try to tell folks what's best based on our experiences, our context, our content. And I'm always reminded that that's not my place. It is definitely my place to make sure that the voices are able to be heard, providing the open tables for that. And as a social worker, it is never my decision to do something for you. 
but to help you the best that I can to do your own thing. And even if you don't do what I like, <laughs> I am still here to help you. I'm still here to offer and to open the tables. And sometimes I think we may get, um, we may get compromised by people not doing what we like or not agreeing with us or not seeing eye to eye. Those places are where the greatest of change is made and we don't see eye to eye. And so I often invite that discourse to the table as a social worker. <laughs> so then you had a position as a clinical director at the Jane Adams Hull House Association. Tell yes. us about that position and particularly what you, what you draw, drew from it. Oh, it's so many things. That was at the time, um, if you are working in the child welfare field, there is a major shift in the Illinois Department of Children and Family Services for children who were deemed in independent living programs or foster care programs. There was a, it seemed like a mad push to um, make children independent who were in foster care. So they would take them from their foster care homes, I think by the time they reached 16 or 17 and house them in their own apartment, sometimes with a roommate, um, possibly in a group home, but there was a, a tiered structure in Illinois. When I came on to working for Jane Addams, I was their intake therapist for their then pregnant and parenting programs where we would take pregnant and parenting teenagers, put them in their own apartments, subsidized by the state um, with education, childcare, all those things, and expect them to live independently and successfully. Lo and behold, the department switched up their, their framework and they wanted more of these children to be, or their children to be in group home settings. So think about um, buying a six flat and putting a set of children, teenagers in a six flat with their babies. That just that didn't, <laughs> didn't work out so well. Um, and I think they revisited, but that was during my time there of uh, being the clinical director and staffing the therapist and the caseworkers who needed to go and make sure that these children were wrapped all the way around in services because what had been happening was they would get all the things that they were supposed to get and then at 18 years old, done, you're done. And they weren't prepared to live. They weren't prepared to be on their own. They were suddenly possibly thrust back into homes where abuse was received before they were put into foster care. Oftentimes, near the end of that, um, some of our pregnant and parenting teams had paramours moving in with them, older paramours moving in with them, taking on the services that the department was doing. So it was a rough space to be in with limited authority. You just wanted to make sure that the children were okay. So I actually was working at Hull House probably at the end of their existence because shortly thereafter they, they did go out of business. Um, and I think it was, it was just one thing after another. I loved being a clinical director and I loved being a therapist um, with teenagers in particularly. It was a great experience. Well, then uh, another position you had was the director of violence prevention at uh, Cook County's Department of Public Health. Now that mm -hmm. has to be a pretty challenging position. What, what was that like? It was also a position where you had jurisdiction, but no authority. So that's where I went to after Jane Adams. Um, I decided that maybe I needed to take a more macro perspective on my skills and social work. And I had previously back in Arkansas worked in juvenile detention. And so at Cook County Department of Public Health Office of Violence Prevention, our task was to work with organizations in the suburbs, in the suburban areas of Cook County 
to help them implement violence prevention strategies. So from our schools to daycare centers to organizations and help them work together to do that, creating policies. Um, the challenge in that is Cook County um, didn't necessarily have a line item budget for it. You had to apply for grants. So I actually helped the organization or the, or the department receive one of their first grants from Illinois Health Cares to create toolkits to put on our website for police officers as well as um, organization leaders to a check like a checkbox. When you encounter an organization or you encounter a person under this sort of distress, what do you do? Like a phone tree, who do you call? What do you have? We helped um, get kits to go in the back of police officers' cruisers so that they, when they approached the scene where there was a domestic violence situation and a child was there, what to do in that case, because that's a totally different situation than just two adults um, having trouble. It was a situation at Cook County Department of Public Health where you have epidemiologists working with lead poison <laughs> prevention folks working with, we were all literally working together and in spaces where I could go into Proviso East High School and help their teachers build programming, I could also make sure that the children at Proviso East or their children were getting lead tested. So we can make those connections and no one really saw that, but that is the beauty of working in a public health field. You get access to all the things that may be impeding people's growth in their communities and violence is one of them. And then you, you became the program director for the Chicago Foundation for Women. Tell us about that experience. What was that like? I love CFW. I actually was volunteering at Chicago Foundation for Women from the moment I moved to Chicago. So I had been leading their, their then African-American Leadership Council and participating in all the things that they did. And so I was an avid supporter. When the opportunity came up to apply for a program officer under um, the, I think her name was Kelly, the, the executive director, I applied. Um, and I was interviewed, but then she left. And so they put the position on hold. Um, and when Kesu Jata came in, I was her first hire um, as a program officer in April of 2011, I believe. And the experience was such that Sujata, I, I love Kay Sujata, I love the entire team. Sujata did not know that I was pregnant when she interviewed me. <laughs> I was like, I must have looked really great as a pregnant for six months. Um, but the opportunity at CFW created a space where we started having conversations about who makes decisions um, in philanthropy who's at the table, um, who's consulted, who's brought in to make sure we are making the right grant-making decisions. And it was the first community-led grant-making program that I had ever been a part of, um, ever had a hand in designing um, and ever implemented. And it is still going today. Um, and it's, it's an organization like none other when it comes to grant-making and services, making sure that you're addressing issues for women and girls throughout the Chicago metropolitan area. That's the <laughs> <of CFW. laughs> and then you're president of the um, Evanston Community uh, Foundation. And let's maybe talk a little bit, maybe more broadly about just the institution of community foundations, because probably yes. a lot of people don't know that much about them. They're really important institutions. There are about 35 or so in Illinois mm -hmm. that do some amazing good work. So maybe if you could talk about them broadly and then also 
um, about uh, the Evanston one that you were president of? So there are, so broadly, there is the um, Alliance for Illinois Community Foundations, which is the umbrella organization or member organization, which most community foundations throughout Illinois are a member of. And what it means to be a community foundation is to be based in the community, serving that community demographically. Um, how you choose to serve them really does depend on how you bring in your dollars. So a good number of community foundations may be fully endowed. So the grant making that they have comes from their endowment, comes from what is invested and the return on that investment. Some organizations or some foundations also have the opportunity for donor advisors to come along and place a donor advised fund at their foundation and then grant from that pool of funding. There's debate back and forth about how much and what should happen with those dollars. Additionally, community foundations also run scholarship programs. They may have a partnership with a local university or a local high school or a local donor who is interested in making sure that um, children have access to higher education. It really can look in many different ways, but the commonality is the democracy, where you are granting and who you're including in that. I happen to lead the Evanston Community Foundation, which is right north of Chicago in a wonderful community, wonderfully giving donors, um, staff, and board really, really dedicated to making sure they wrap their arms around Evanston. And in that time, it was just the process again of making sure that there is racial equity as well as make understanding what racial equity is and who has the power to make the decisions about where dollars go and how they're being distributed, what data we need to collect to mark that we're being successful in that area. And in the five years that I was there, they the years before I got there, they were doing really, really great work. So let me not say they were they were a successful organization before I got there. Um, and I like to think they were even more successful when I left. Um, but now in the hands of Saul Anderson over there, we did some marvelous work with being inclusive in Evanston. And if you've kept up with the news, they've had some some interesting things happening in the school district making sure that we're supportive of the superintendents that are there and the efforts that they are making across all of Evanston. And then not being too far away from Chicago and the surrounding communities to make sure that it's all happening in concert with each other. Well, then, then you started in, with Forefront in January. And, and I, one of the reasons I kind of walked through your background, I know at one of the early meetings, you, you sort of smiled and said, everything I've done has prepared me for this moment. Um, you know, these, these various disparate experiences from direct service to managing um, important organizations has, has prepared you for mm -hmm. Forefront. So why don't you, I, I, one of the things you mentioned in, in some of your early conversations with people say, you guys are doing great, great work. Tell me again exactly what you do. And Forefront is a complicated organization, doesn't lend itself to a lot of quick uh, elevator pitch uh, descriptions. So when you meet someone and they say, okay, what is Forefront? What do you do? What are What is its central mission? What do you say? I say we are the only statewide organization focused on increasing the capacity and the, um, the work of both our nonprofit organizations as well as our funder organizations and their colleagues and allies and advisors. It means that we build programs so that people can make the best decisions with the base data 
and they can collaborate on the front end of making those decisions rather than realizing after they have set course in one direction that there's someone else doing it differently or better or not so great. Um, Forefront is almost 50 years old, so we are thinking about what to do for our 50th anniversary, if you will. But in those years, we transitioned from an organization that was solely focused on philanthropy, philanthropy serving organizations called Donors Forum of Chicago, dropped the of Chicago so that we could, um, well, simultaneously dropped the of Chicago and then added the lens of working with nonprofit organizations so that we could be more inclusive in our work and our lens. And now it's forefront taking away the donors part of our name so that we could be more inclusive of all of the worlds that we engage in. And we are focused statewide with that. It is complicated unless you're a member and fully engaged. So I often tell people, don't just get the membership. Get the membership and respond to the emails that you see when an opportunity comes to attend a webinar or an event or engage with someone come to the member orientation. What people may miss is the connections if you don't do that, because we're not gonna come to your office and say, hey, come here, you're gonna get an email. The other thing about Forefront that people might not know is the team of about 20 really, really works to take the information that we need from our members through member surveys and build programming around that that is really specific to the needs. So you might not really ever see a general, just a general workshop or webinar to attend. They're curated based on what we know our members need. And the real, real goal is to, again, always make sure that both our funder members and our nonprofit members are engaging with each other and informing the work that needs to happen in the sector. And that's really, really important. Not that it's more important now, it's always been, but it's really, really important now. I know Forefront has really some amazing training programs for, um, for people in this broad community. I've, I've listened in on a couple of them, and these are just really important for, mm -hmm. tools for people to figure out how to navigate this, this complicated world. It's a few things actually, John. So there's the training programs, but as a, as a member, you have full access to our library. Now it's COVID, obviously you don't wanna to come to our physical library, but you can call our staff and ask for resources or data points or access to Candid or the things that we um, subscribe to. That is very valuable. Small organizations can't necessarily afford all those subscription services, but being a member of Forefront allows you access to a lot of data. Um, and hopefully soon when we open up our library in our new space, history that is beyond comprehension about philanthropy and issue areas throughout Illinois that we're addressing. The workshops are more cohort based. So you'll may see an opportunity to apply to participate in a three month, six month, nine month program focused on fundraising or focused on good grant making. We obviously do have the Grant Making Institute that happens once a year and it's very, very popular um, for folks who are new or seasoned in grant making as we discover new best practices to implement. Those are always great, but what's really awesome is the opportunity to help each other. So our peer Skillshare program where I just learned something new or something really well is working in my organization, whether it be strategic planning or 
um, a new assessment that I've used with my staff, some team building, and then I connect with someone across the state who is looking to do that same thing and we're able to share. That, quite frankly, even decreases the amount that organizations have to pay for professional development with their staff. And I'm really excited about the people that are that offer, that offer their services and offer their time to share that skill set and that expertise with their peers. And I think that's the best of both worlds. People who don't follow um, your world closely on a kind of day-to-day -day basis, I mean, one question they might have is, what is, what is the world of philanthropy in Illinois? Who are the major players? What are the segments of the community? Um, mm -hmm. You know, how is it relevant to our lives? Take a crack at that. What is what is the philanthropic community in Illinois look like, and what what role are they having in the day to day lives of people across the you state? Know, I will say something that's very unpopular. The biggest um, set of philanthropic giving in across the world is actually individual donors. So what we see in you know what's publicized is when you go to a website and you see, and I'll take, I'll just take Chicago Community Trust. You go to the website and you see all the grants they've given in a certain time period. You could Google any organization and see the grants that they've given or probably received in a certain time period. What you can see is the individual donor who has made it their mission to support a cause or an organization or something near and dear to their heart or their family's heart. So. Taking that out though, our major players are our larger foundations and our family foundations throughout the state. Um, because I sit in Chicago and a lot of my colleagues are here, I know that to be true, but I also know that our community foundations across the state and our family foundations across the state are interested in making sure that our rural communities have what they need post-COVID, post-disasters. Um, and that in the metropolitan Chicago area, our funders are really focused on education, finance prevention, the things that we see on the news a lot, if you put, if I, if I put that together. Um, so we have a good swath of private foundations, corporate foundations, family foundations, um, and of course our public foundations. And then we do have a good amount of our individual donors that support those causes, whether it be through a family donor advice fund or a small family foundation. So it's pretty vast, actually. Pretty, pretty vast. I, I was reading an article uh, inside philanthropy, which was talking about uh, uh, philanthropy more generally. And it, it was talking about uh, corporate philanthropy. And I want to read a couple sentences and have you mm -hmm. react. It says, corporate philanthropy is a cautious beast given to robust commitments during moments of crisis, in this case, a crisis of national conscience, but is guarded in its overall stance. With few exceptions, companies tend to deploy their giving along uncontroversial lines. And that does little to counteract common assumptions about corporate philanthropy, that it's all about brand management intended to court public goodwill while papering over harms committed in the name of profit. Mm. Does that strike you as a little bit too harsh? Or do you think, uh, how does that description of philanthropy resonate? I think to a certain degree, it could, it's it's accurate but harsh yes <laughs> so um if you think about a corporation you think about a business that um wants to make sure they are marketing the good that they do and wants people to recognize that they are doing socially good things you're right um corporate philanthropy will make sure that that is done they are well-oiled machines and they typically will have a staff behind staff a set of staff members behind the scenes that can make sure 
but there is recognition and marketing of those efforts. So that doesn't in any way decrease the value of the dollars that they give. And also that statement may make an assumption about how the decisions are made, which is changing actually um, in corporate philanthropy. And actually Forefront is working with a set of corporate partners to think about how they make those changes in their giving and how those processes can be multi-year and long-term rather than one-off based on a current need. What we see and what I know, what everyone knows is that causes are circular. They don't go away just by the drop of one grant. And so corporations are also wanting to do good and they have to open up their processes and they're doing it more than the ones that I work with to make those changes and partnering, looking to partner with other funders and other givers to make sure that it's sustained. One of the best practices that I implemented, and I know we know we've always implemented at a foundation, is you probably, if you don't have the funding to solve an issue, don't act like you're going to solve an issue. <laughs> don't act like your grant, your one grant, is going to solve an issue. And never say that. And also work with the person or the organization that you're giving the dollars to so that they understand that you're not able to solve the issue, but you're a part of helping to do so. And I think our, our corporate foundations are also in that space of recognizing that they can't solve, you know, craft can't solve the hunger issue. Uh, Mundelis can't solve the hunger issue. Um, however, worldwide, if they can do good in that area, they are going to. And so corporations think along those lines of who, who benefits from their sales <laughs> um, and who is their audience in their sales and who is their audience in their giving and making sure that it, it's on point with their overall business model. Monique, you mentioned the term racial equity, and I know it's a, a, an important part of Forefront's mission. For those who don't, you know, inhabit this realm, what, how should they understand the term racial equity? And, and as a follow-up question, I, I saw you on a panel in which you were talking with several of our colleagues about racial equity, and the discussion was, you know, for Forefront, there's an inside game in which you're trying to model the, mm -hmm. this, this ethos within the, the organization but also an outside game where you're trying to affect systems. So it take is. a crack at that, both defining the term and then the inside and outside aspects of it. It's, it's a combination of all of that, quite honestly. So racial equity is both a process and an outcome. So racial equity includes us thinking about who we're harming in our decisions, um, who is being harmed and the processes and the outsets of our decisions who is being included in that decision-making and making sure that the people most impacted or affected by the issue at hand are being include, included in creating the answers, um, challenging the authority, changing the power dynamics in that. So at the end, when you reach the answer, you know it's the right, the best right answer because of the people who've been involved in making those decisions. In philanthropy, sometimes it's hard to um, give away the perceived power that we have at the decision-making table. If you think about our hierarchies that we've created in that space to make sure that we've checked all of our boxes and made sure everything is, is cleared before we move forward. So there's a sense of um, philanthropy or racial equity balances, the urgency of the decisions that need to be made with making sure that we're making the decisions the right way along the way. And when I say racial equity, that's because if we look at 
all of our issues. If we look at education, we look at poverty, um, we look at all the data points for all of the issues that we're thinking. And then we boil that down by racial groups that we have created at the bottom with the lowest percentages in all of them are people of color. So we build up from there. That is, that's thinking about how to include the people who are most impacted in making those decisions. It does not mean race is the only focus. It means that if you start with that, you will get to all the things. And there are a lot of things in that process. Um, for Forefront, and I've committed to this, is meeting communities where they are, especially when they do not think race is the issue. And that's fine, that is absolutely fine. There's no way I would come into your community and say, you have a race issue. I don't know that, I don't live there. What I wanna know <laughs> is, do you have a desire to figure it out? And if we get to poverty levels and your community happens to be a community that does not have any people of color in it, it's still an issue. It's still an issue that has to be addressed and how we address it depends on who's there to help pull that. So the inside game for Forefront is to make sure that my staff and my board feel comfortable enough to have been called out on some of these things and still do the work. Racial equity is not a place of comfort. It's gritty, it's grimy, it's, it's heartbreaking, it's maddening, it's all those things. And yet it has to be done. There's no time for us to go home and say, I'm done, <laughs> I'm over it. <laughs> There's no time for my staff to go to another organization in hopes that this doesn't happen because it's around us everywhere. Um, no, no matter where you look, it, it's, it's surrounding and as more of our um, larger funders pour dollars from their um, corpus into it, it becomes at every waking point when we have to think about it. So internally, my staff is doing work um, we call ourselves the, the advancing racial equity troopers internally to work with each other and being um, very transparent about practices, policies, even our, our way of thinking and how we create programming. And then in learning each other, have a very diverse staff. And so sharing about our backgrounds, understanding what our backgrounds are, being okay with saying, okay, you said this phrase, I don't know what it means. I don't want to be offensive. Tell me what this means. Or your ethnicity looks like this, what all is included in that and feeling comfortable enough to ask that of each other. That's just a space where I think it's, it's better served learning internally than my staff um, possibly ended up in a meeting where they feel comfortable, they don't feel comfortable asking these questions and are, are at a loss. Externally, it is me and my staff understanding what we're hearing from our members and what they need to learn and implement about racial equity, which looks very different in a lot of our organizations. So I know my funders are working through how do they implement racial equity with their grant making and their follow-up decision-making and all of those things. And so they are putting standards in place simply in order for organizations to receive grant making, things like, your board needs to demographically reflect the community that you serve. That sounds really simple in some places. In a lot of places, it's not. Um, so there's a, I won't say a disconnect, but there's a need. There's a need there between what some of our funders are now seeing as a necessity to implement to make sure there's racial equity in the organization and what some of our organizations are really able to do. The other thing is, 
in everything that Forefront does with our programming, our even even our fundraising, how we go about what we do needs to be informed and embedded in our racial equity lens. So if we are creating a month-long cohort of, you know, something very fabulous that we've dreamed of, <laughs> have we gotten the right um, influence? Have we reached out to the right partners to help us plan it? People of color leading BIPOC-led organizations may not be able to leave their job in the middle of the day to join what we think is fabulous for an hour every day. And if we have not reached out to the community that we intend to serve before we build that program, we will miss that. I mean, and I don't wanna miss that. There's no time for us to miss the opportunity to be fully informed before we build out a program and, and think that we open it up and everyone will come. So being able to do that at Forefront, um, I'm mixing the urgency with the process. It's probably much longer than people would see. Um, but it is happening. And so we are releasing little bits of information about that to the public. The first being a webinar that we did in, in March. Um, they'll shortly next month will be a follow-up with me and my senior team about some of the internal changes that were made. And so we're going behind the scenes to share what's happening internally. And so the community can understand it when it does become very public, um, how we're moving about our racial equity work. And then the other externals, we actually have a board committee. We have a board committee that is really focused on this and it's with board members and um, some external stakeholders that come together uh, quarterly, probably a little bit more than quarterly, to look at forefront functioning from our programming to our fundraising, to our communications and marketing, to our hiring and retention practices. And that is all very transparent and that's the only way that it can be done to make sure we're hitting all of our spaces um, before we reach the end of our strategic planning process which has just begun. Monique, I just wrote a, a book review of George, George Packer, who's a journalist for The Atlantic, has written a book uh, called The Last Best Hope about the many travails the United States is going through. And there's quite a bit he writes about race and he writes about it in a really challenging way. And I wanna read a couple sentences and have you mm -hmm. react to that. He said, but talking about race rarely gets to the heart of the matter. The talk is crippled by fear, shame, hurt, anger, politeness, posturing, self-censorship, self self-flagellation and the inability of flawed human beings to rise to the subject's huge demands. No one says what they think when the setting is a university classroom, an anti-bias training session, a news, newspaper op-ed, or a tweet. These are all performance spaces. It would be better to have a real conversations, two people of different races alone in a room together, speaking, listening, responding, on and on for an hour or two or three, telling the truth. Do it with a hundred different pairs, film the conversations, disguise the identities of the participants, and stream them unedited on YouTube. The project would achieve more than all the best sellers and workshops in the world. What do you think? I read that and I underlined it and said, I need to deconstruct this. What do you think? I, was, I think I was okay until it came with disguising the people. Um, there are two takes on it, and, and I've seen this happen in multiple workshops that I've been in. It's, it's so easy for people to get on defense, and I may have played one basketball game in my life, um, several flag football, but I have 
the inherent understanding of defense and offense. So in any conversation, I will often tell my staff or whoever I'm talking to is get off defense. Stay off defense. You're not, we're not doing a hardcore press on anything. Understand that your position is always offense, to be open, to be understanding, to think about your place in it, but don't take anything personal because this person that you may be talking to, they're talking about way more than what you and your individual life created. And so I, I hear what he's saying. And I have been in spaces where he's, that person's right. One-on-one -on -one dialogue is very, very important. At some point though, the conversation absolutely has to go bigger and decisions have to be made. Our hope with, with I think with Forefront, we were using our TRHT programming in, internally. The hope is to get at the hearts and minds as well as the policy. And that's the framework of TRHT. You have to work at both ends. And there are so many opinions about how to go about it. I believe you have to do both. Not in disguise though. <laughs> We have some questions I'd like to go to. And the first one uh, is James from Wilmette who asks, what is meant by the phrase, quote, a vibrant social sector? What are the specific focuses of Forefront to achieve a vibrant social impact sector? And how would we know it when a social or a vibrant social impact sector has been achieved? So, so think about vibrancy when you look at a flower. <laughs> it sparks imagination, it sparks um, excitement, it sparks positivity. Vibrant, I've used that word in, at Evanston Community Foundation actually. Vibrancy means just that we are thriving, we are doing positive things together, um, and we are responsive and collaborating together. My hope is that when Forefront or when our sector is vibrant, then we're all working in lockstep together. And so Forefront is here to help that lockstep happen. Um, I've often talked to organizations that don't like words like vibrant. I think it's a beautiful word. Um, I think there's nothing negative <laughs> about, about that word. It can't be construed anyway. And there's a certain bit of flexibility in vibrant that you get to choose the vibrant that you need. And for me and for Forefront and for the sector, that is being positive together working together and creating change together that is very, very positive and bright for our future. Okay. Thank you for asking that question. Sure. Uh, George Philadelphia asks, have donations to philanthropic organization risen significantly in the wake of the pandemic? Do you think that most people realize that without philanthropic organizations, we'd be without critical services? I'll answer the latter question first. No, people do not realize that. They don't realize the, the gap between um, what government funding does um, and what the, the need really is. So unfortunately, um, our philanthropy organizations or philanthropic serving organizations have been called to fill a gap that they can't fill. Um, and yes, more donations did come in twofold. More individuals gave and more foundations gave um, last year. And Subsequently, I think people may think problem is solved. Um, and so their giving may have gone back to normal levels given the economic times that we're in, but they increased twofold, actually probably more than that um, last year. And I would be eager to see what the, the giving is gonna be 
Forefront is actually releasing a survey to our philanthropic organizations this week to see what they intend for their giving to be moving forward if they will sustain the levels that they were called to sustain last year during the, the onslaught of COVID or what that looks like moving forward. Tom from Chicago asked, he says, I have started or led 14 nonprofit enterprises in the arts, community development, and civic engagement. I've taught nonprofit administration policy classes at several universities, and I think it's time to face the fact that America's nonprofit industrial complex has failed miserably to deliver real change, justice, and equity. To take one depressing fact, black household wealth is heading to zero within 20 years if we continue as we are. A lot to unpack there, but what, I mean, I guess the term nonprofit industrial complex grabbed my attention. What, what do you gather from that term? I think, um, hmm, what I gather from his entire comment is that there is a missing link between what he says and what our nonprofit organizations are being called to do. Um, last year during COVID, a lot of organizations were created um, because there was a, a missing link in lots of communities, um, communities that weren't being served, which were really inherently overly ex um, affected by COVID. So I, I agree that there's a lack, of, there's a failure in, in some spaces. I don't think it's our nonprofit organizations that have failed. I would call our government. <laughs> um, our government has been, has been the failure in some of these places and our nonprofit organizations are being created to fill in some gaps that um, unfortunately aren't able to be filled. Well, I want to ask a couple of questions about your approach to management. And I, I saw in one interview, you said that sometimes when you're in a meeting um, and when you hear something particularly that you don't agree with, you, you, you try to make the mental trip and saying, okay, what is the opposite perspective of the one that I have? Mm -hmm. Tell me how you, how you try to do that in kind of tangible ways when you're in, in discussions in which, you know, the other party is just in a completely different uh, uh, sector of the universe. You know, I, there, it's been so, it's easy to get caught up in getting angry, <laughs> but I have found it so good to just try to say, well, let me try to understand this better. And so the, if I'm in that situation where I'm like, you are crazy, I, I initially say, tell me, tell me more. Let me understand more. And if I ask that enough, tell me more, get a little bit more. I literally get down to the very, very bottom of where they came up with that idea um, and how they built on it one, one inaccurate idea at a time to get to a place where their perspective is totally opposite mine. I do always understand that I'm an overly optimistic person and I love that life about myself, but everyone is not, um, not that way. They are, they lead with a deficit-based model. They literally come to the table that everything is a problem and I need to solve it. <laughs> and I walk around in roses and bubbles thinking everything is perfect unless you tell me otherwise. Now, I know that is not true. However, in the harsh world that we're living in, I just aim to, that's the social worker in me, John. I aim to understand where a person is coming from in hopes to not necessarily convince them to change their mind, but to better understand them. And I hope that that same is given back to me to understand where I'm coming from. And the more that we can do that together, 
the better we can come out of it having some like-minded options. I saw one interview where you were asked about um, just, just the work that you're doing. And you said that you want your daughter, who's now 10 when she's your age, to be able to say, you know, my mom did some things. She just didn't go to meetings. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you go to a lot of meetings. But tell me how you can, how you try to balance that, just sort of the demands of just, you know, the inbox coming at you versus the, the, the really desire to have tangible accomplishments. How do you balance that? This is true. Now, saying this, I realize the privileged place that I sit with being able to say how I'm going to do my work. And I understand that that's not a lot of places. I was in a place where um, the demand on my time was incomprehensible. And um, what happened was we were interviewed in my home. And I forgot the question that my daughter was asked. And at the time, I think she may have been seven, six or seven. And the question was, what does mom, what does your mother do? And she said, my mommy travels a lot. That was it. End of, end of question. <laughs> and that hurt my heart. And so I knew that whatever changes I needed to make, that I had to be forward thinking with telling whoever was depending on me that, you know what, my family's first. Brielle, um, Drennan, they go on my calendar and everything else is second. And trust me, I can accomplish the everything else. Nothing will get neglected. It will just take me being more strategic instead of what had been happening. And what often happens with nonprofit is rapid fire, solve this, solve this, solve this, be there, be there, be there, and show that you care. Um, how I balance it now is probably not the most popular, but I do, I shut down. So I am talking to you on a computer. It has all the things on it. When the time comes to where I need to be at, you know, picking up somebody from cheerleading practice or my husband has needs to do something, it goes down. It's on my schedule to go down. That does not mean that it doesn't get done, but those places where I can't be 100% present, it does, it does me no good. The other thing that as your children is my child has gotten older and she understands what I do, what I do she's become more flexible. So, so I can sit at, um, I don't know, a practice of some sort, swim practice is what she's in, and I can have my laptop out. And if I need to hit off some emails, I can do that and I can shut it down. I can watch her win her heat. So, so those are the things. And, and then I talk about my family. Some folks, you don't know that they have family. I have one child and she gets 100% of mommy. Um, and the minute that she has to get 99%, there's a problem. Um, and so, it, you, it just becomes a balance, not even a balance, a blending act. You get me, you're likely to get my daughter and my husband and my aunt and my brothers, <laughs> and I will keep them as well behaved as I can. But in order to be, and I strongly believe this, in order to be successful in anything, you do have to bring your whole self. So the more that I try to contend with um, what was a place of misunderstanding about balance, the more stressed I became. And at some point that stress will, it'll break everybody. It'll break the organization because they won't you know, have the guidance that they need and it'll break your family and home life. And I don't plan on being you know, headed to divorce court or <laughs> therapy sessions with my daughter. Um, so the balance actually is, is, is really shutting, it's truly, truly shutting down and not, um, not opening it back up. And I also don't have my email on my phone. <laughs> I tell everybody, I do not have my work email on my phone. You cannot email me and it shows up in my hand on my phone while I'm in the bed. That's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, well, tell me how you like to relax. I, I think I, I saw an interview where you said that you like to run and golf and so is that right so, so I do um so behind me is a, a home gym where I have my Peloton bike and my Peloton tread plus and I go from one to the other just to get them both done I ran I would guess what I would call a 5k this morning I hit three miles this morning um before everybody in the house well that's my space before anybody wakes up I I get it done um, I need to get back to golfing. I don't, I don't even remember what my handicap was, but I may have golfed one time this summer where I took my daughter out and we, we did that together. So I do enjoy golfing and, and testing myself. I'm a left-handed swinger. So that in itself is a challenge, but I, I love it. Um, and then sewing is not something I avidly do. It's something I have to do if I need to. Um, but I can, and I picked that up from my mother and my grandmother. So um, quilting little pieces together. I actually have a quilt that I need to finish from my grandmother. Um, those are the, the basics, but running is, is the thing. And I'm actually set to run the AIDS Foundation race here in a few, a few weeks with my staff. Um, that's how I relax. The other part is when the world opens up safely, like fully safely, and I would love to travel again and see all my friends across the country. Well, if someone is to visit Arkansas, where should they go? Spend a, a long weekend in Arkansas. What, where would you recommend? The places I have to go when I come. My cousins think I'm crazy. Um, first of all, you do have to hit the, the Clinton Library Museum by the river. Um, and then the River Walk, which is right by um, the Arkansas River. And there is a restaurant there called Cotham's in the city. If you like fried fish, they have the best fried fish sandwich. Um, with cheese, sorry, country. Um, <laughs> um, and there's a popsicle place over there as well. So if you ever go to Little Rock and you have time to go to the river market, that is your place. And while you are there, go to the Clinton Library um, and see a saxophone and all those things. Um, but make sure you do eat you some fried fish. That sounds good. That sounds perfect. Well, Monique, thank you so much for just a great conversation. We could go on and we'll be actually seeing each other in just about two days for our board yeah. meeting. So I look, I look forward to that. And when travel opens up, I know you're very connected to um, the Community Foundation down here in Southern yeah. Illinois. I know you're deeply interested in really solidifying um, forefront statewide reach. And so mm -hmm. we'd love to have you down here and, and meet with students and the community Absolutely. and, and uh, see Southern Illinois. I'd be happy to be there. I'm excited to come. Thank you for listening to Simon Cass, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute. Simon Cass is produced in collaboration with WSIU Public Radio. You can find Simon Cass wherever you listen to podcasts, including NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Please subscribe to see new episodes as soon as they're posted and tell your friends about our show. For more information, visit Paul Simon Institute. Dot org. Thank you for listening and thank you for keeping the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well.